<laughs> good morning. It's good to have you here. Uh, if you've got a Bible and prefer to read out of your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you want to follow along on the screen, you can do that with us as well. This is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a really interesting church. Uh, it's a church a lot like ours. It's got a lot of stuff going on in it. It's not all good. You know, it needs fixing. It needs Jesus. And uh, to this church, uh, the Apostle Paul writes the following. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your wisdom and help us to reflect on our own and help us, God, to better know you, better understand your purposes, and uh, to be better grounded in this faith that we have. God, guide us as we enter into a series where we really start examining this thing of faith and whether or not faith is foolish. All of these things we ask of you in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen? Amen. This passage that we just read is, has always fascinated me because Paul admits to a largely Gentile Greek-speaking church at Corinth that the preaching of the cross, the teaching that Jesus uh, lived on earth and then died and then came back from the dead, it looks like foolishness to people who don't embrace this, don't believe this. Uh, he he refers, to them, uh, refers to them as those who are perishing, to those who are, in other words, living life without God. Faith seems like a crutch. It seems like a weakness. Maybe you've heard that. But, well, that's good for you that you need that or that you need to believe that. However, I don't. That may be an expression or a sentiment that you've heard expressed before. Historically, uh, it's interesting, looking back, the belief of many during a period that we now identify as the Enlightenment, uh, the belief that many had then was that eventually with scientific advancement and the ability of science to explain more and more and more things and the process of education to disseminate that knowledge to more and more people, eventually the belief was that the supernatural or belief in the supernatural and in particular belief in God would vanish. Nobody would need to believe in God any longer. Uh, mankind would, of course, know better than to believe in God. And yet the reality today is that faith and religion are growing. More and more people in the world in which we live today are coming to faith. A major new study by the Pew Research Center, and this was reported in the Washington Post, says, and I quote, that the world is expected to become more religious, not less, end quote. 
So while acknowledging that in the United States and in uh, Europe, the percentage of people without religious affiliation, those are the nuns that you hear about, uh, they will be rising in the United States and Europe for a time. But the article also points out that around the world, overall religion is growing steadily and rapidly. Christians and Muslims will make up the increasing percentage and increasing percentage of the world's population while the proportion of secular individuals will shrink in this upcoming century. There's a guy named Jack Goldstone. He's a professor of public policy at George Mason University, and he says the following. Sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization would bring a growth of secularization and unbelief. That is not what we're seeing, he says. People need religion. Huh. Who'd have thunk it? Tim Keller says in a book, in fact, this is a book that I'm going to be referring to a lot in the weeks to come. It's a book called Making Sense of God. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, it's, a, it's a good read. Uh, he writes there, he says, demographers tell us the 21st century, the century that we live in now, will be less secular than the 20th. The, there have been seismic religious shifts toward Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa and China, while evangelicalism and Pentecostalism have grown exponentially in Latin America. Even in the United States, the growth of the nuns has been mainly among those who had been more nominal in their relationship to faith, while the devoutly religious in the United States and Europe are growing. Again, who'd have thunk it? This may explain the kind of the recent phenomenon that we've experienced that we see. Uh, it's, a, it's a movement uh, that's been labeled the New Atheists or New Atheist Movement. These are intelligent, very intelligent, very angry, very frustrated voices telling us that faith makes no sense at all. There are a number of individuals in this movement. Daniel Dennett is one of them. He wrote a book some years ago called Breaking the Spell. And his claim is that for too long, religious faith has been kind of a sacred cow. And because it's sacred, we're not allowed to say that it's nonsense. And he says that uh, these, these ideas of religion are protected by the idea of being something sacred or being something holy. And so that's what he seeks to do in his book is to break down or to point out the silliness, the foolishness of religion, Christianity in particular. Uh, there's another writer who graduated from Stanford many years ago. His name is Sam Harris, and he's written some books. One of them is called The End of Faith. In that book, he writes this. He says, we have names for people who have many beliefs for which there are no rational justification. Sam Harris makes the claim that his beliefs or, or his life is based on rational justification. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but he says, when their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious or religious beliefs. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, psychotic, or delusional. While religious people are not generally mad, their core beliefs absolutely are. I'm glad we could clear that up for you. <laughs> but it's not just people writing books who struggle with questions. I mean, we'd be lying if we contended that. It's not just people promoting certain philosophical points of view. The truth is, sometimes, for most of us... Um, there are difficulties, there are struggles, there are times when we find ourselves wrestling with what we say we believe. Uh, somebody prays for an alcoholic father for 20 years and nothing seems to happen. Somebody tells me that uh, they prayed for a decade for a 
sister who had mental illness and then sadly and shockingly that sister takes her life. Someone says, I used to believe in God and I would pray and it seemed like he would answer, but lately I've been in very difficult straits and I pray and honestly, it seems like he doesn't care. It seems like he's not there and I don't know if my faith can survive this. So what I want to do in this series is take a, some weeks as a church and walk through this thing of faith. Is faith foolish? I'd like to try to answer that and come at that from different angles. What does it mean exactly to believe the things we say we believe? What does it mean to question and to struggle? Can I question things and be a faithful follower of Jesus? How do I grow in my faith? And along the way, we're going to look at some of the biggest questions that get raised around this subject of faith and belief. And I'll tell you my hopes kind of on the front end of this. I hope that if you have doubts, if you experience uncertainty in your walk, you'll feel a sense of permission to explore, to ask questions, to think. Uh, I hope you'll discover that God can be smack dab in the middle of our questions, smack dab in the middle of our doubts. God can be found there and faith can actually grow there. Trust can grow in that kind of soil. I hope, too, you'll feel a freedom to invite others who may be searching or just have honest questions. I hope that you would invite them, not because we've got all the answers here, because we don't, but I would say we have some, some important ones. I also hope that uh, this series will be beneficial to everybody who already follows Jesus. Uh, I hope it will strengthen our faith and our trust in him. Trust is a big, big thing, even uh, where we lack certainty. But also, as we talk, I hope that we'll see that we can have some humble confidence in the ideas that we profess to hold dear. I mean, God has revealed himself to us, not entirely, uh, not completely, but sufficiently. And know this, we all live at the mercy of our ideas about the way things are. All of us do. It's called having a world life view. Everybody has one. World life views are based on faith, as I'll try to point out in a minute. Ideas about the way things are, whatever you believe, largely dictates how you live, what you do, what you decide to do or not do, decisions you make. For the person trying to follow Jesus, understand, there is no way to have a strong, growing attachment to God if there are deep questions in your mind that you are afraid to examine or afraid to look at, honestly. And that's why in this series, we're going to talk about some difficult issues, some important ideas. Um, And here would be the first one, first observation. The problem of certainty. I am absolutely certain about this. The problem of certainty is an inescapable part of the human condition. In other words, there is no doubt-free living. Part of what it means to be a finite creature with a limited IQ is there is no escape from doubt. And this is true in many areas of life, not just when we're talking about philosophy or when we're talking about theology or things like that. When I got married, there was no doubt-free guarantee that I was doing the right thing or that I was marrying the right person. Uh, I knew I wanted to get married. I thought it was a good uh, decision. Uh, I knew I was marrying up. Holly kept telling me that. Um, (laughs) But there's no guarantee, no guarantee in this. 
Uh, when Holly and I left Boca Raton, Florida, many years ago to start a church, I thought it was the right decision. I thought that's what God was leading us to do. I believed that God was calling us to start a new church, but there was no guarantee it would succeed. I had some lurking doubts. I still do. Um, and, and that's just life. That's just life. We live in the condition of doubt and uncertainty. And in this series, we're going to see that there can be a number of factors at any given moment in a person's life as to why they're experiencing uncertainty, whether that's about God or about Jesus or just about anything. Some doubt about God or about Jesus because they have placed their faith elsewhere. They've chosen not to believe in God or believe in Jesus, but to believe in other things. They choose, for example, to believe that the universe is purely material, Nothing supernatural, nothing transcendent, purely material. That means no supernatural. That means that intrinsic, there's no intrinsic moral structure to the cosmos. Um, that means you're going to have difficulty, too, talking about you, talking about your personal consciousness. We'll come back to that, too, in a moment. Am I putting you to sleep? Did I tell you? I didn't tell you. You're going to have to put on your thinking cap a little bit uh, each week as we come into this series because it's going to require that you uh, kind of work with me. Uh, there are some people who follow Jesus and they can come to a place where they doubt and it can be because of circumstances, difficult, difficult circumstances, things happening to them that they don't understand. It can even lead to things like depression and out of depression, doubts can arise. That happens to people all the time. Sometimes a Christ follower can find themselves doubting Jesus, doubting his teaching and the primary reason for that is, is actually sin. It's moral. I've met with people before who have said to me, Pastor, you know, I want to talk. I'm, I'm kind of having a crisis of faith. And as we dive in and start to talk, what I really realize is they're having a moral crisis. They've bought into something or practicing something or doing something that they know Jesus would not approve of. Jesus would say, that's not good. That's not healthy. That's bad. That's going to put distance between you and God. But they want it so badly, they won't let go of it. And so they have a crisis of faith. It's really a moral crisis. But know too that lacking certainty in life is an inescapable feature of just being finite. Being a creature who thinks but at the same time is not God. Do you know that about yourself? That you are not God? You need to know that. You are not God. If you want a doubt-free existence, you have chosen the wrong species. Uh, birds, lizards, dogs, cats, chimps, whatever, they don't doubt. But human beings do. And that's partly why uh, the author Jude, short little epistle in the New Testament, makes this statement. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Why? Because we all do. We all need mercy. Absolute certainty is very, very, very hard to come by. If you wait until all doubt uh, is removed before you make a commitment to follow Jesus or a commitment to get married or a commitment to have children or a commitment to change jobs or to choose schools or whatever it is, you will never do anything. Really, the lack of certainty is part of the human condition. That's observation number one. Are you with me? Yes. Are you certain? Yeah, I didn't think you were sure about that. Observation number two, every human being, like it or not, has to live by faith. Friends, there is no such thing as a person who only operates on the basis of logic 
or rationality or scientific evidence or scientific fact. The notion that some people need faith while others don't is silly. That's that expression I said a moment ago. Somebody will say to you, well, that's good that you have faith if you need that. I don't. No, you, you too need faith. Every person does. Um, in fact, much of what we do in life is done on the basis of belief, solely belief or faith. Uh, we would call these things convictions. Uh, things that are not done on the basis because we've, we've rationally proven them or we have scientifically investigated it to prove that, that it is so. If I say, for example, I love my wife, is that something that can be scientifically proven? Uh, if I say, um, um, well, we'll just stick with this one. I love my wife. It's, that, that's good enough. That, that's a big enough problem right there. Uh, if I make a statement like that, what does that mean? Does that just mean that there are certain firing neurons in my brain? Uh, am I referring to a complex chemical reaction that's going on in my body? Or am I referring to something that is best understood and even best defined by a God of love who explains love to me? Uh, if I look at a Vincent van Gogh painting, The Starry Night, one of my favorites, I absolutely love this, uh, and I say, wow, that is magnificent. That is beautiful. That is inspiring. It moves me. Is that capable of scientific proof, a statement like that? Can a physicist or a biologist or a, or a chemist prove the certainty or the truth of either statement? The answer is no, no. Statements like I love my wife or that's beautiful art are what might be called basic convictions. Uh, like the belief that children deserve lavish love. Anybody here believe that? Children deserve lavish love. Well, a lot of you don't. <laughs> the visitors won't be bringing their kids back here. Yeah. Or how about this? All human beings are created equal. Anybody believe that? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, these are basic convictions. These are actually beliefs that cannot be proven. They cannot be proven to be true or correct, not in some scientific, mathematical, or logical sense. But they are the kind of beliefs that we human beings build our lives upon and hold to be true, dearly true. Tim Keller says that there are two reasons that religion continues to grow even in the scientific secular world order that we have in the West. He says this, he says, many people find secular reason to have things missing, you see, from it that are necessary to live life well. He goes on to say that another explanation, the second thing, is that great numbers of people intuitively sense a transcendent realm beyond this natural world. And I would have to say that that's part of why I follow Jesus. It, it just is. Um, only a good and righteous and personal and loving God makes sense to me out of things like uh, love and hate or good and evil. I best understand what those words mean against the backdrop of who God is. Only a creative, wise maker of the universe, someone who loves diversity, loves color, loves shape, and so makes sense out of the word beauty or out of the word creativity. And the reason that we know what love is, although certainly we only know it imperfectly, the reason that I know what beauty is, although certainly very imperfectly, is because we are made in the image of a God who literally embodies those things. And I see these things beautifully displayed also 
perfectly displayed in the life of Jesus. Without this understanding, things like love, words like beauty, compassion, kindness, goodness, they make no sense at all. They have no meaning. God even helps me understand the phenomenon of evil. Not because he is evil, but because of the opposite. Because his character is the very opposite of evil. You see, God is truthful. God is loving. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. God is fair. God is good. Evil is the opposite of all of those things. Science cannot give these things meaningful definitions. It doesn't even really try. Science can only describe what is. Tim Keller says this. He says, science alone cannot serve as a guide for human society. This was well summarized in a speech that was written for but never delivered at the Scopes trial. Remember the Scopes trial, the monkey trial? I was there. It was something else. It was 1925. It says, science, and this is a quote from that speech, science is a magnificent material force. Anybody disagree with that? I mean, I love the refrigerator that I have versus what they used 200 years ago, which was a block of ice. I have a kicking butt mountain bike because of science. I love it. Let me tell you, I love it. So I agree wholeheartedly with this statement. Um, science is a magnificent material force, but it is not a teacher of morals. It can perfect machinery, but it adds no moral restraints to protect society from the misuse of the machine. That's a big problem. Science does not and cannot teach brotherly love. Secular scientific reason is a great good, but if taken as the sole basis for human life, it will be discovered that there are too many things we need that it is missing. Uh, Jennifer Hedge is an author, wrote a book uh, called A History of Doubt. It's a really interesting read. Uh, she says that there are basically two ways to approach life. One takes a lot more description than another. Uh, she says the first way to approach life is the universe is nothing but an accidental pile of stuff jostling around with no rhyme or reason, and all life on earth is but a tiny, utterly inconsequential speck of nothing in a corner of space existing in the blink of an eye, never to be judged, noticed, or remembered. Uh, that's one way to see it. That is a materialist's view of life. That's a rather discouraging view of life, too if that's uh, where you want to stop. The other view of life, shorter to describe, uh, she says is this. She says, no, I think it was created by someone, by a personal God for a reason who will hold all things accountable someday and fix it. So interesting. Now, here's an important point. You ready for an important point? Okay. Understand this conversation, it's not really a conversation, but this conversation that we're having, uh, that, that you have between a person with faith and a person without faith, uh, th there's no such thing really as the category of a person without faith. All people are people of faith. The two views that I just read to you, both of those views are based on faith. Neither view can be proved with any certainty that there is a personal God who created it all, or that it's all just a materialist a cosmos that we live in with no transcendent meaning or, or creator or person or rationale behind it. Both positions are essentially based on faith. Both rest on a series of beliefs. Now, we don't like having to live by faith. That's true. 
I mean, every once in a while, someone will come along and will try to figure out uh, some basis for which, some, some means by which they can live without faith and just know something rationally. Many centuries ago, you've heard of this guy, Rene Descartes, right? You've all read his stuff? Yeah, okay. In the 1600s, he asked the question, is there anything, is there anything that I can know for certain, absolutely for certain? And uh, he wanted to do away with doubt, you see. And what he came up with uh, was cogito ergo sum. You've heard this, I think, therefore I am. In other words, I know I exist because I'm asking if I exist. That was his conclusion. And that was one thing that he thought he could know for certain. The problem is there was another school of philosophy that followed shortly on its heels that took the view that truth of any kind cannot be known, period. And so even Descartes' position became radically undermined by that school of philosophical thought. This is the philosophical school of skepticism. Have you heard of that? The school of skepticism. This is all going to be on the test. So I hope you're taking notes. Uh, the school of skepticism says there is no way really to know any truth, at least nothing for certain. In fact, we cannot know what we is. Personal self-consciousness is a real problem, you understand, for science, uh, for philosophers. And there are modern-day versions of this kind of thinking. Uh, Daniel Dennett, the guy, the philosopher I mentioned earlier, says that the problem of consciousness, trying to understand what we means or I mean, that is our biggest problem. What exactly is a self? What is, what is self-awareness? Our idea that there is a me. Or a we, what does that mean? And the problem is simply this. Are you staying with me? I have to keep asking because I just see, you know, okay, problem is this. Science tells us that we are merely about 100 trillion little robotic cells. That's what a human being is. About 100 trillion little robotic cells. And not a single one of them is conscious or self-conscious. And Daniel Dennett says, not a single one of them knows who you are. Not a single one of them cares who you are. And these cells are not very different, he says, than bacterium. That's your cousin. And yet when we put them all together, we talk like a me or a we or an I. Uh, they, they make a, a person with a self-conscious awareness. How do you explain that? Well, Daniel Dennett would say, you can't. The answer is, you don't even try. Because scientifically, you are just a conglomeration of 100 trillion little functioning robotic cells. Now, the question, of course, is, are we just firing neurons and chemical responses inside 100 trillion little cells? Or is there something more to human beings? Human beings who fall in love, for example. Or have a sense of right and wrong or beauty or ugliness, right? Daniel Dennett's position is there is no such thing as a cosmically significant you or me or we. Uh, all there are are cells made up of atoms and there is this material stuff. And so what we call you is nothing more than a series of chemical reactions happening in something called a brain, just firing neurons, myriads of cells. And so the notion of a you is just an illusion. Would you like to get up and take your illusion home now? <laughs> the problem with this position is 
It's an impossible position to live in. Impossible. Nobody can live that way, and nobody does. Not even Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett writes and sells books arguing that there's no such thing as Daniel Dennett. There's no such thing as a me or a we or a you or an us. Uh, he does TED Talks. They're very interesting. I've listened to several of them, watched several of them. He actually uh, thinks pretty highly of his own ideas as opposed to your dumb ideas about God and Jesus and life, you stupid bundle of a trillion or so, of 10, 100 trillion cells. But, but actually, his ideas, let's just kind of work this out. His ideas are just firing neurons like your ideas. So whose ideas are better? Whose ideas are right? Even more importantly, who's the who who cares? You see? Using Daniel Dennett's logic and ideas, no ideas ultimately matter. They can't. This is just a new version, a scientific version of the school of skepticism. And it's a view of life that is impossible to live consistently. Because you will fall in love, or you will believe things, or you will see beauty, and you will enjoy it. And your you will care about your who and whoever else your who wants to woo. <laughs> You'll have to go listen online to figure out what I'm talking about. But if Daniel Dennett is correct, then understand this, none of this matters. But we all believe it does matter. We all do. Daniel Dennett married Susan Bell in 1962. And they have a daughter and they have a son and they have four grandchildren just firing neurons in cells? I don't think so. Daniel Dennett loves to sail and writes poetically about it. Why? <laughs> I mean, why? 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, in a philosophy class on skepticism, the final exam was very simple. There was a chair placed in the middle of the room, and, and uh, the question was, does this chair exist? And so all the students, you know, start writing and filling up their blue books and what have you. And... Um, except one student who wrote just two words. What chair? Question mark. <laughs> Got an A. Got an A. You know, skeptics believe that it is impossible to know whether or not a chair really, that's the key word, really exists. But even skeptics, by faith, will sit down in the chair. Very difficult to live life as a skeptic. In the scriptures, the writer of Hebrews says this, without faith, it is impossible Underline that word, impossible to please God. And that troubles some folks. They wonder, why do you have to have faith? Well, I would point out that without faith, it is impossible to please anybody. It is impossible to live without faith. Try to make a friend without having faith or trust. Faith that they are telling you the truth. Faith that they will show up at the restaurant where they said they were going to meet you. Trust that they will pick you up from work because your car is broken. Try to parent without faith or trust. Impossible. Try getting married without faith. Faith that they will be faithful. Faith that they will stand uh, with you, your partner, through thick and thin. Faith that they will love you. Try to raise a child without having mutual faith and trust. 
Faith that they will tell you the truth. Faith that they will do what they say they're going to do and vice versa. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That is true. But without faith, understand, it is impossible to please anybody. Without faith, it is impossible to live. And here's the big point again. There is no such thing as a person who lives life without faith. Are you with me so far? Okay. In an op-ed interview uh, that was shared with me this week, um, there's a guy named Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, and he's interviewing Tim Keller. Um, have I quoted Tim Keller enough? <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, Tim Keller makes this statement. He says, in the end, no one can demonstrably prove the primary things that human beings base their lives on. Whether we are talking about the existence of God or the importance of human rights and equality. And then he quotes Nietzsche, our favorite philosopher. Nietzsche argued that the humanistic values of most secular people, such as the importance of the individual, you know, the dignity of a human being, or human rights and responsibility for the poor, have no place in a completely materialistic universe. He even accused people holding humanistic values like that as being covert Christians because it, is requ- it required a leap of faith to hold these views, to hold these beliefs. And then he says, we must all live by faith. So there, see, I'm right. Tim <laughs> Keller said it. You see, whether that person follows Jesus or not really makes no difference. They still exercise faith all the time, every day. All day long. Maybe not faith in the belief in Jesus, but in just about every other area of life, they live by faith. Just, that's just how finite human beings do life. We do it by faith. Whether you're a rationalist like Rene Descartes, whether you're a skeptic, a lot like Daniel Dennett, or whether you're like a humanist, this interviewer, Nicholas Kristof, who wants to believe certain things matter. Human beings are created equal. Wants to believe that, he has no basis for it. He has to just believe it, you see. Doesn't matter. Rationalist, skeptic, humanist. You still sit down in chairs. You deposit money in banks. Why would you do that? If there's no point to life, if there might not even be a you, why are you bothering to deposit money in banks? You fall in love. You believe the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You believe that all men are created equal. But you don't bother to rationally prove any of those things because... You can't. You can't. The important question, which we will get to um, eventually, is in who or in what do you trust? Is your faith warranted? You see, the foolishness of our faith largely is determined by the who or the what we put our faith in. We'll get to that in a couple hours. When faith, uh, there is a day coming, this is so interesting, there is a day coming, according to the Bible, when faith will not be necessary. That'll be great. That's good. A day when all doubt and lack of certainty will be wiped away. Uh, Paul makes this point when he writes to the church at Corinth a little later on in this letter. We looked at a little section there in chapter 1. In chapter 13, Paul says, now we see, that's a knowing word. He means now we know. He says, now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. In other words, presently, some things, many things confuse us. We have misunderstandings. We have doubts, questions. 
We lack knowledge. We lack certainty. But he says, then we shall see face to face. We don't see face to face yet. Now I know in part. That means without certainty, he's saying. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. You see, now we live in an age where we need faith. Faith in all kinds of things. As I've been saying, faith that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Faith that the world is real. Faith that I am real. Faith that you are real. Faith in each other. Faith in friends. Faith in God. Faith in the book that God has given us where stories are told about him and how he relates to people. Faith in the Bible. But the day will come when faith will not be needed. That's going to be a great day. That's observation um, number two. Every human being has to live by faith. Here's observation number three. These are shorter, by the way. Amen? So observation number three, uncertainty can lead to stronger faith. There might be some madness, some, uh, some sense to the madness that, that we find around this thing of uncertainty. Maybe, maybe God is actually up to something in the way he's created us and the cre- kind of creature we are where we lack certainty. Uh, there could be a purpose behind it. Uncertainty can lead us to seek answers. Sometimes, not always, sometimes we get answers. Uncertainty can make us humble in our dealings with one another, or at least it should. Uh, Religious doubt can cause us to dig deeper into our relationship with God and in the process get to know God better. Sometimes Christians who doubt can become overwhelmed by guilt feelings. They feel like, oh, I'm not being a very good Christian. I've got some doubts or whatever. And so they try to repress those doubts, those feelings, those concerns. Friends, where you lack knowledge, where you lack answers, where you lack certainty, be humble and be patient and dig deeper. Take those concerns to God. I mean, we're not going to get into it this morning, but that's the whole point of the book of Job. It's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Kohelet, the the, uh, observer of life in the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, notes that there are a lot of things in life that make absolutely no sense at all. And as you read it, you're going, is this really in the Bible? And it's like, yeah, it's there because that's how we feel often. Life doesn't make sense. But at the very end of the book, it's that, you know, there is a God. Yes, you don't understand and you may not even get answers, but there is a God. And so this faith and trust thing becomes very, very important. God wants our doubts to eventually drive us to deeper places of faith and trust. But that can't happen if we try to suppress or ignore our doubts. And a lot of times that happens in churches. I'll tell you the truth. We delight God when we dig to get better understandings of our faith or of the world we live in. Did you know that God loves science? Did you know that God created science, the whole investigative process? It honors God when we seek to gain a better understanding or more knowledge or look for scientific discovery. That, I mean, that all honors God. You know, Jesus, in fact, had a lot to say about this thing of truth. It's, it's so interesting to me. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The, finding the truth out about something actually helps us become who we're supposed to become. Jesus said this, too. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, that's interesting. He said, when the spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So Jesus talked about a process for disciples, men, women, children, growing in their understanding of the truth, learning and uh, possessing better knowledge, more accurate knowledge. But it is interesting to me that according to Jesus, you don't have to choose between truth or Jesus. Your search for truth will ultimately lead you to him. Even when sometimes we hold certain things to be true, 
And they seem to contradict the faith that we have in Jesus. Be patient. Be humble. Keep digging. You might figure it out. Or you might not. But here's the deal. There is no other way to do life than to do it by faith. And my question is just this. Have you considered Jesus and putting faith in Jesus as a partner in the pursuit of finding truth? Jesus, understand, would have you investigate, have you think, have you question, have you wrestle, have you struggle, have you work it out as best you can until you come to see that beauty and complexity and wisdom and mystery and truth and certainty are all ultimately found in him. Ultimately, he's the resolution of every intellectual dilemma that we have. You just won't get them all resolved in this life. The problem of doubt, our lack of certainty, can and should motivate us to know him better and trust him more. That's observation number three. Here's the last one. Time is it? Oh, we got lots of time. Uh, Number four. When certainty is impossible, faithfulness is called for. Can you think of any doubters in the Bible? Who's the most famous? Yeah, he was such a doubter, it became his nickname. Abraham doubted. Sarah doubted. Elijah doubted. John the Baptist. All these people had doubts, very significant doubts at certain times. Doubts about what God was up to. Doubts about where life was going. Uh, Jesus' family at one point thought he was crazy. Now, if tradition is true, and we have no reason to believe in this case it isn't, really Jesus' whole family became followers of him and believed that he was God's son. But at one point in time, they thought he was all crazy. Or they all thought he was crazy. And all the disciples uh, at another point in time ran away. I mean, there are lots of doubters mentioned in the Bible. But here's the interesting thing. God doesn't give up on any of these doubters. Thank God. God didn't ask and doesn't ask people to manufacture certainty. He asked them to trust and be faithful to what they knew. And we... uh, have many times read the Great Commission, you know, in Matthew 28 together and and thought about various aspects of the words there. Those 11 disciples who just before Jesus ascends into heaven, they're gathered together. These are guys who have learned with Jesus and studied with Jesus and followed Jesus and ate with Jesus and watched Jesus heal people and and listened to Jesus teach. I mean, they've been immersed in Jesus for some time, but listen to how they're described again. It says, then the disciples went to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. That was good. They listened. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's good. It's kind of what we're trying to do this morning. But some doubted. (laughs) You know what amazes me there? Matthew tells us this. If I'm writing the gospel of Matthew and I'm Matthew, I'm not putting in Matthew my own gospel that I'm doubting while I'm worshiping. (laughs) But he does that. He points that out. Something else that's interesting to me is what these doubters did. While they doubted, while they wrestled, as they worshiped, while they did not have all the answers, they trusted. And they were faithful to tell others what they did know to be true about Jesus. See, the question isn't do you lack certainty or do you have doubts? The question is are you being faithful even in the midst of your uncertainty? 
And maybe what matters most to God is not that I have certainty about everything. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that doesn't matter to God. <laughs> He's not that concerned that Dwayne has certainty about everything. But maybe what matters most is that I be faithful to what I already know. And there are some things I know to be true. Maybe what matters to him most is that as a follower and a disciple, I learn to trust even when I'm uncertain. And maybe if I'm willing to do that, he can still use me even in the midst of my doubts. There's a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. He's a theologian, and he comments on this passage in Matthew 28. I think this is so insightful. Uh, I wish I had thought of it, but he thought of it. And it's, he says this. He says, the Christian faith is bipolar. Disciples live their life between worship and doubt, trusting and questioning, hoping and worrying. Jesus looks at these worshiping, doubting guys, and he says, you go. You doubters go. You risk your lives for me. You change the world for me, and you will find as you go that your own doubts, at least some of them, are healed. And I, I think he's right. Disciples are not people of certainty. They doubt and worship. They doubt and serve. They doubt and help each other and others with their doubt. In fact, as we follow Jesus, as we share his life and truth with others, we find that many of our doubts, some of them at least, get healed, get answered, become more certain to us. And here's the thing, and I'll end with this. Amen. It's just that we're supposed to be a community that processes this kind of stuff, not a community that goes, stop doubting. We won't have any of that here. We're supposed to be a community that can wrestle with integrity, with the word of God, with the Bible and what it says and what it teaches. And to do so open-handedly enough, nobody panics. God is a big God. There are many things we don't understand. But we're going to understand them someday. So let's be that kind of community for each other too. Even in our life groups when we gather and people ask stupid questions, right? You ever been in one of those? Yeah, what a dumb question. Ah, is there a dumb question? I mean, you know, let's be places of, a place of grace. And let's help each other wrestle with our doubts and our uncertainties. And let's, let's trust in him even when we have those doubts and uncertainties together. Let's have the worship team come back up here and... Uh, as they do, let me pray. Father God, thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that as we navigate life with its many, many uncertainties, you do not leave us or forsake us. You walk right with us through those uncertainties. May we come to love and trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.